information presented is in no way to be considered as a standard of care, and the content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. The information is provided with no guarantee. All content is for informational purposes only and does not constitute providing of medical, legal, or regulatory advice. Welcome to this episode of Blue Crew Medicine. Today we're going to talk about preeclampsia and eclampsia. So I've got some uh, new people joining us today. There's Dr. Rachel Morris, who's one of our board-certified OBGYNs, uh, maternal fetal medicine expert here at UMC. I get the pleasure of teaching stork with her all the time, so this is fun for us. Um, and then the Davis Holiday is coming back. One of our flight nurses off Air Care 4. And then I'm uh, Will Alphabu, the Air Care Educator and one of the CCPs. So let's get right into it. So we're talking about preeclampsia. So defining preeclampsia real quick, just I stole this off up to date. <laughs> just so everybody gets the straight definition, it refers to new onset of hypertension and pro... Ah, I can't ever say that. Right. Yeah, that one. Or new onset of hypertension, uh, significant end organ dysfunction with or without... Severe features. Yes. Um, after I 20, know the definition by heart. Yeah. <laughs> after yeah. 20 weeks. Yeah. We see it all the time here in Mississippi. When y'all think of preeclampsia, what do you just think of right off the bat? Just straight up, no think. I mean, you get to deal with it every day. I think of high blood pressure, but. Absolutely. No, we have a huge problem with it in Mississippi, but it's a worldwide issue. And it, unfortunately, is still killing women and killing babies. So, for sure. I mean, rip roaring, hypertension, and all the things. So, they changed the definitions of preeclampsia a couple years ago, not to be confusing, but we used to call it mild preeclampsia and severe preeclampsia. So the definition is hypertension and protein, but it also includes features now, people that present with certain symptoms. So what we talk about now is you either have preeclampsia, so new onset hypertension with proteinuria without the features or with the features. So the features are simple things, headaches, blurry vision, neurologic symptoms, um, right upper quadrant pain, um, elevated liver functions, twice the upper limit of normal, thrombocytopenia. Again, they're, they're, when you think of all of this stuff, you really have to think about it as a spectrum, but it has to be on your differential. And the, the crazy thing about women is two-thirds of preeclampsia happens postpartum. So it's not just the lady with the big belly. It's the lady who doesn't look pregnant, who doesn't tell you she just delivered five days ago, who comes in with hypertension. And again, if it was your blood pressure, no big deal. But my blood pressure, if I just delivered four days ago, a huge problem. Again, that can turn into even scarier things. So That's something that comes to mind for me is what is our definition of hypertension, right? Like if we go pick up an ischemic stroke and somebody's got a 160 over 98 pressure, we're like, okay, fine. That's tolerable. Right. For them, that's that's tolerable. But for for these patients, that that could turn into a problem. Quickly. So when you, again, it's every three in 50 pregnancies typically have high blood pressure. Absolutely. Um, I think pretty much everybody at this table knows somebody personally that's had it or has definitely worked on a few patients, to say the least. Going down to eclampsia, just to go ahead and knock that out, the grand mal seizure that mm-hmm. happens after. Eclampsia, is con- for me, is like the bad day. right? Absolutely. So you got preeclampsia, I'm like, all right, my blood, my blood pressure's up a little bit, along with theirs probably. Um, I'm concerned, I'm trying to prevent all these other things. Eclampsia happens, all right, now I'm really a little more worried about the patient and what I'm going to have to do and how far down the road are we going to go. When you think of eclampsia, 90% of the seizures happen within a week. Of the delivery, yes, correct. And it's it's important to say, like you said before, 
it's the mom after delivery. Those right. are the ones that it sneaks up on people or like they don't ask. We get to do one of the simulations in the store, not to give it away, but there's one that's like, hey, they're postpartum. Is that something that you, is that even, a question you always ask? Even on your mind, yes. Yeah. You come in and look at some, you don't see a big belly, you don't see somebody, you don't see the baby with them. Obviously, they come to the ER. I mean, if I was, if it was my kid, I probably wouldn't come to an ER with a two-day-old. With a bad headache and a blood pressure 140 over 90. I mean, that's severe, that's severe preeclampsia. What's interesting is when you talk about eclampsia, it's about 20% of patients who will seize have antecedent hypertension. Again, so it's not, it's not all of them, but the majority will have a headache. Again, so they'll catch you sort of off guard and then like you said you have this seizure and we don't really know why the seizures happen we think it has to do with some kind of autoregulation dysfunction cerebral hyperperfusion ischemia all the things endothelial dysfunction again and then they seize real fast but it can cause major other issues stroke intracranial hemorrhage again there can be a lot of other sequelae and of course if this happens during pregnancy that's a whole different can of worms that we're talking about, which is just as important, but you really have to be aware of what you're dealing with. And recognizing, so you asked the question, what is hypertension? Well, 140 over 90 in someone who does not have hypertension is an abnormal blood pressure for a pregnant mother. In fact, severe range hypertension is not much higher. It's 160 over 110. In fact, that's a trigger to treat. That is the threshold to treat. And when you, again, talk about the conversion to eclampsia, there's a significant amount of mortality that occurs in that hypertension. So eclampsia, we have to treat, and we'll talk about that in a couple minutes, I'm sure, but controlling hypertension will eliminate about 20% of your deaths in the setting of eclampsia. So it's all together. It's not just the eclampsia, and it's not just the hypertension, but if you miss all of it and continue to prevent the recurrent seizures, which again, when you're dealing, these are, we're smart folks out here talking about seizures and epilepsy, and status epilepticus, this is not, it's very different animal. Totally different ballgame. Yeah, it, it really, really is. So, um, but again, it all fits together again, and the treatment is very specific. So if you've missed the fact that they just delivered, you know, it, it it's, a, it's a mess, so. And let's talk about a little, real quick, kind of bring it back a little bit about the pathophysiology behind a pregnant mother. So, with, you know, it's 40 weeks, in an ideal world, 40 weeks, their body goes through so much changes, so many things, so what's going on with them as far as cardiac output, their respiratory drive, what their oxygen man is, everything you can think of as far as distal perfusion, their venous return, all those fun things that we deal with a lot in critical care medicine of like what presser am I going to use or what drug or what toy am I going to play with today? But when you think about a pregnant mother, there or even postpartum that change can't happen again overnight they don't just go from okay they released a baby now we're back to normal physiology absolutely it takes at least six weeks to return your cardiac output changes pretty fast after delivery which is also a problem because that you know 30 percent of cardiac output in addition to the 30 to 50 percent increase that you've had over the course of the pregnancy goes up even further to accomplish the delivery and then you have this massive autotransfusion and drop of your cardiac output within the first 24 hours but really all the SVR all of that takes at least six weeks to go back to normal again hypertension in pregnancy takes at least six weeks to go back to normal 
uh, or if it's preeclampsia or something else. So it's definitely not small, small potatoes. It takes a long time to fix these things. And sometimes they never go away. So unfortunately, when you have preeclampsia or other things, it increases your lifetime risk of cardiovascular disease and ongoing hypertension. So some people, I mean, I'm sure you've heard it. I had preeclampsia. Well, now I have hypertension and I, I never had got the chance to stop taking my blood pressure medicine because my blood pressure is always up now. And it stays up. A mm-hmm. lot of those patients, we live in Mississippi, so we have a lot of patients that are hypertensive at baseline. They live with some renal impairment or what have you, or just genetics of the way it is, or they're like me and they like to eat. So it's a, it's a, it's a thing, um, especially all the good food, but knowing what they were before they were pregnant, if they were already hypertensive, mm-hmm. will they go up so much? Okay, great. But after pregnancy, urging people to go, whether you're the spouse or you're the pregnant mother, go do your follow-up. That's something for me. I almost sit on a soapbox for about two seconds and say, go to your follow-up. Don't blow it off because you may miss something or you may realize, hey, look, you do need to be on nephetopine or whatever it is for the rest of your life um, just to keep everything under control because we don't want you to end up with on dialysis or what have you. We're talking about real quick about oxygen consumption because it's real important from the, to me, seeing it from the critical care perspective. Um, we intubate people all the time. We deal with all kinds of weird processes like, you know, cyanide toxicity, all these things about mm-hmm. oxygen consumption and how much they really take. How much more oxygen does a pregnant mother or even recently postpartum mother take than a regular patient Joe Blushmo? So with respect to just the pulmonary changes you have to just again think about it I have to keep it simple big abdomen increases your diaphragm by term about four centimeters so again physiology is simple when you think about it that way your total lung capacity your tidal volumes all those things decrease well your your functional residual capacity excuse me decreases your total lung capacity decreases but your volumes actually go up because the pregnant lady needs more. Um, Again, the pregnant ladies from uh, oxygenation and ventilation standpoint, when they are pregnant, it's pretty miraculous how it happens, but the fetus has to exchange CO2 to the mother to be able to survive and permissive hypercapnia in the mother is really not tolerated for that reason. So the mother, because of what is required to maintain a healthy status for the fetus, is actually a functional respiratory alkalotic. So she puts out more CO2 because the baby otherwise will maintain, again, it's just a shunt. So the mother, it's a diffusion of that CO2 from the baby as a byproduct and the mother can can tolerate it that way. But if the mother has normal CO2 levels, um, then that actually is a sign of impending respiratory failure. So again, it's really important just to answer your question. Again, their overall ability to maintain and to ventilate and their reserve is decreased. If everyone remembers that, then we're good. It's going to be a hard airway. All the things change. Progesterone dilates your airways, increases your secretions. Again, the pregnant airway, whether or not she looks like me or has a 500 pound you know, big, thick neck, it's going to be a harder airway. So again, having that preparation, assuming a full belly, all the preparations that you would normally take, but again, understanding that those changes, again, CO2 levels need to be lower. Again, your tidal volumes may be higher. 
again, what they can do, and again, that they have such limited reserve. So I'm talking about a regular lady. Then you talk about a decompensated lady or this heart failure lady you told me about. Mm-hmm. I mean, they have no reserve. So it's a, it's a much more of a decompensated picture when you talk about someone. And these are usually young and healthy people, right? Like they don't have, for the most part, and you know, so they look pretty okay until they're like about to fall off the cliff, so. I compare them a lot to um, pediatrics. We're all taught that they'll maintain until they don't, and they just right. drop off the cliff. absolutely, yeah. Pregnant mothers are the same way to me. Yeah. They don't, uh, they do fine. Usually the first trimester, they're pretty okay. Everything seems to be hunky-dory. You get in that late second trimester, third trimester, when they want to decompensate because of whatever insult or injury, whether it's trauma or metabolic or medical or what have you, when they fall off, they, they go fast. Absolutely. Um, that's pretty much what you've seen, too. In our world, we go on yeah, gullies. And the one tidbit I'll add is kind of what Rachel was getting into is the your ABGs you draw on these patients are going to be different. Mm-hmm. Their normals are different than my normals right now. Um, and shameless plug, our MCS app has all these slides with you can see their normals. So when you draw these ABGs and you see something a little different, uh, just be aware that it's just not there. These pregnant mothers are not going to have the same ABG readout as and they me shouldn't. And you. Yeah, right. they shouldn't. If they do, you need to be more concerned, which, you know, is sometimes not really, it's hard to remember like, Oh, that looks good. Wait a minute. That actually is not supposed to look like mm-hmm. that because good normal is actually you know respiratory failure that so. that PaCO2 of 45 is like oh well they're they're composite no 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 they're, they're no, like actually, in they're failure about to, they're about to they're you're about to have a really bad day have to have a really bad day and and your baby's not tolerating mm-hmm. it either and then you know when things are moving fast we always talk about this in stork two if you don't stabilize the mother you have no baby right and eclampsia and preeclampsia are no different if you don't stabilize the mother and treat her well then your your baby's really an afterthought so we have you know obligations to the mother and all these obligations usually benefit the baby but everything you're doing to stabilize her will give you a chance at having a good baby you know any baby at that matter so um it's definitely one of the tricks of of medicine is recognizing that a pregnant woman and a recently delivered person is a totally different animal and again the respiratory system is like classic way of seeing how different they are and just trying to remember that will save lives so it's a big deal i'm glad you brought that up it's one of the biggest points i want to bring home about this whole entire episode was treat mom yeah don't it's really easy to get focused on the baby and hey what could happen if they're 28 weeks they're already in distress and you're worried about this you know may have some congenital anomaly and everybody start when we got the baby you got to think about the mom at the same time if you keep the mom calm, if you can treat the mom, if the mom is preeclamptic and the baby's in distress, well, treat the preeclampsia appropriately mm-hmm. based off what's going on. And most of the time, the, the baby will do a whole lot better. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, don't give the two milligrams of Dilaudid right before delivery kind of thing, one. But um, pet peeve of mine, when I see narcotics given like within an hour of delivery, it's like, okay, hang on, hang on for a second. You're going to make the baby distressed. Part of that's from my, my neonate flying all the time. But taking the two seconds to pay attention to mom, pay attention to what's going on and say, all right, let's treat mom and the baby should come out. Okay. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about identifying some of these, these preeclamptic patients specifically. Sometimes they have really subtle symptoms. Sometimes they don't the, the headache, uh, the blurred vision, uh, 
Again, there's all the lab tests in the world, but it boils down to the things we pretty much say on every episode. You have to assess your patient and talk to your patient. Mm-hmm. What What's their history like? Has they changed in the last couple of days? Is there something that, hey, they've had a progressive onset of headache? Uh, you know, is it the thunderclap, subarach kind of thing? What What's going on? What What tools... So for y'all, what tools do you use for an assessment as far as trying to figure out, hey, where do I need to go with this patient? Are they sick or not sick, or is this something I need to address right now, or are we going to watch for a minute and keep going down the road? Or What, what, what tools do y'all use? I think that verbal history is really important. Um, I know, Will, you and I had a patient in the past that her symptoms she brought her into the ER was she had a headache and she was almost having an aura where she was having some tingling in her extremities, mm-hmm. right? And the next thing you know, she's seizing. So um, that verbal assessment, what is different from her today? Like what what's new in her pregnancy? Like has she been having headaches? Is that normal for her? Does she have migraines? Uh, you compound that looking at her vital signs and how she's presenting uh, to really formulate what's going on with her and getting a plan together. I think a lot of patients, you know, will tell me, hey, you know, I just don't feel good. When a pregnant lady tells me she does not feel good, none of them feel good, right? So that's a silly thing to say, but when they look at, when you can see them and you can tell that they don't feel good, it's almost like flu sometimes. Again, they'll complain that their stomach aches, again, whether it's right upper quadrant or their whole entire abdomen. They have these headaches, the blurry vision, um, seeing spots. It's not really a myalgia's fever or cough type situation, but you have to be careful because there are a lot of things that will overlap with preeclampsia, particularly cardiomyopathy. So you have to have that in the back of your mindset too as to is this lady's function normal? But of course, the vital signs and the just the overall presentation. I mean, I have the benefit of working at the hospital. I'm not in an ER. I have protein. I, you know, in the clinics, of course, we're looking at all that too in a dipstick, but it can be anything, a urine, a dip, a PC ratio. We use all those things to help us identify and then all the labs, but the presentation and when did this happen? Is there anything else going on? Did you have this before? So a history of preeclampsia is your greatest risk factor for having it again. We use aspirin if we know that someone has had a prior history of preeclampsia. We give an 81 milligram aspirin. It's the only thing of all the studies we've done that has shown a reduction, a significant reduction in recurrence of preeclampsia. But taking a history and figuring out that that is something someone's ever dealt with will already clue you in, of course, to what could be leading your differential diagnosis. I mean, there's other things that we worry about, but that's certainly the majority of how they how they present. So you get a patient that comes in your ER, pick the fun numbers, 142 over 93. Sure. That's their that's their blood pressure. They come in with a headache. She's got a little bit of a blurred vision. We'll kind of use the aura thing me and you had. And the patient comes in and says, I just don't feel good. Initial treatment assessment, all right, we're going to take a blood pressure cuff every 15 minutes. We're going to watch it, see if it comes down. If we just, we're anxious because we're in the ER, we got the white coat syndrome, or we... Are we dealing with the excitement of being in the ER, what have you? Oh, and she's uh, 33 weeks pregnant. We'll just throw that number in there, too. Um, as far as your management, watching her escalate, you just watch her at first? So if you have someone, again, technically it all goes boils back to the definition. So if you have someone with a 140 over 90 and a headache and you have a, a dipstick that has that's positive for protein, and honestly the protein 
can even fall out of the definition. If you have the hypertension and the symptom, that's preeclampsia with severe features. So immediately, that lady needs magnesium sulfate to protect her from developing eclampsia. And it again, in a male or someone who's not pregnant, 140 over 92, who cares, right? That is a, it's just basic chronic hypertension. But for her, she's at so high risk of, you know, of that evolution that you have to monitor it. Now, again, it's not a trigger to treat the hypertension yet, but you need to be cycling your pressures every 15. Need to send off the labs and make sure it's not HELP syndrome because, you know, again, that's a variation, a more severe variation of preeclampsia with severe features. But you can have hemolysis, you can have platelets that are in the toilet, you can have severe elevations of your liver functions. Again, that's indications for delivery, indications for mag sulfate. So you got to be looking at all those things. But that lady then gets the serial blood pressures, gets moved to an obstetric unit, or gets transferred somewhere that can actually take care of her. Magnesium sulfate standard dosing. So we usually load somewhere between four and six grams IV over 15 to 20 minutes. That establishes a therapeutic level. Once you have that therapeutic level, she should not seize. And then you continue your mag for usually two grams an hour. When you have someone on mag, again, you have to know they're going to feel terrible. They get real hot and flushed and sweaty. They feel like they can't breathe. Well, then, okay, that's how preeclampsia feels too. We put Foley catheters in these ladies. you got to monitor their urine output. If they are urinating, you won't get mag toxic. Again, if your, your assessments, again, in addition to blood pressure every 15 minutes, is a lung exam and reflexes, making sure that your mag levels aren't getting too high. Again, it's just... It, doesn't sound like a lot when you talk about a 140 over 90 with a headache ah no big deal it's a huge deal that then requires such intense evaluation to make sure that you're not missing something but again getting that magnesium sulfate on board is how we prevent the eclampsia which again a lot of people forget because of the presentation being sort of mild and then we have deaths yep. you know a lot of people blow it off. I mean, I'll be Again, honest. agreed. I yeah. get it. It's not a big presentation. You just have to know what's happening to and not but underestimate how serious it can be. Definitely. The the backside of that, you remember when we're talking about MAG, for those of you listening, it's one of those drugs. I really love it. I love all the properties you can use it for. You can use it for a lot of things mm-hmm. now. Uh, it's coming back into fashion, cardiology and respiratory and all these other fun things. But Keep in mind that you do want to watch their blood pressures, not only for making sure they're not progressing preeclampsia, but you don't want to make them hypotensive. If you do give it too fast, they will tank on you. Mm-hmm. Um, that draw it up in a syringe and push it thing, let's, let's not do that today. Yeah, that's one of the things I wanted to bring home is that mag is given for a lot of things, but it is not a benign drug. This no. is what this patient needs, but just like you're doing your serial blood pressure checks every 15 minutes, this isn't a hang it wide open and walk out of the room drug. No. Um, I've seen I've seen it kill people, honestly. Um, so please, 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 when you hang this drug, make sure you got the right amount, the right rate, go back in and check on them, check your deep tendon reflexes, look for those signs of mag toxicity, because once you get into that, um, you're in trouble. You're in trouble. It yeah. can cause it can cause death. So please, it Absolutely. is not a benign drug. No. We very, give a real, yeah. Very very much agree. Give a real little shout out to my mother-in-law talking about the. She'll tell you all the time. They still to this day tape calcium chloride or calcium gluconate to the bag. Yes. Um. She's an L&D nurse for 30 years, and just in case it just wards off evil spirits. All they do it for same thing like we do a lot of times. Just put the epi by the head, but they. Uh, 
they'll do it just to, just to ward off evil spirits or just to remind them, hey, this is not a benign drug. This We do have a way to kind of counteract it, but you can really harm somebody if you do it inappropriately. We're spoiled on labor and delivery in that we get pre-mixed bags of magnesium sulfate, but to recognize that you have to put you know, 20 grams in a liter or 500, you have to make sure that your calculations are correct. I've seen people roll in from an outside place running six grams an hour IV and, you know, the patient's totally gorked out about to code because someone didn't pay attention to what they should be giving. When you have someone who's preeclamptic, they're often oliguric, they're not urinating. So what I mentioned, again, four gram load, six gram load will get you therapeutic. Sometimes you can't continue an infusion. If someone's not making any urine, the load is enough. The load's more than you need. If I have someone with end-stage renal disease, I don't load her with four, I load with two. And then I check a mag level every four hours to make sure that I'm not getting super therapeutic. Sometimes you just give boluses every four hours. It's, it's an art to this medicine, and it is absolutely critical that it is treated just as serious as it should be. Because again, we want a range of somewhere 4.8 to 8.4, but if you start stepping out above 8.4, you lose your reflexes first, then it's a quick respiratory arrest and a cardiac arrest, again, with you know a, a level of 15 or greater. Calcium gluconate, one amp is how you reverse it and stabilize the membranes. But I mean, any pregnant lady on mag should get a reflex at least every two hours. Again, you can check it every time you go in there. And if you don't have reflexes, turn the mag off and administer the calcium because then it can get sideways so fast um, because of the physiology. Again, a pregnant lady should be urinating, her GFR goes up, she should chew through those drugs. But when you consider what changes in, in pregnancy, in preeclampsia specifically, it's all the reverse. Again, they're not urinating, they're not clearing their medicines, their renal function is poor. It, it's a pathognomonic for the disease. And so you, particularly this drug has to be monitored carefully. So. Yeah, now all that scary talk aside, oh, yeah. it is the drug that they need. <laughs> yeah, so it came from, I, I brought the trial, so it came from the Magpile tri. So the Magpile trial is something that came out in the Lancet, I think in 2002. And the reason why you give magnesium sulfate over other things, again, y'all are trained differently than I am. Everybody uses, you know, Ativan or Valium to stop a seizure, and that's fine. But when you talk about prevention of recurrent seizures, nothing else works but mag. So you have a 60% reduction in seizures and a 45% reduction in maternal death. So that's, I mean, this is a proven fact that nothing else works. And if you forget your mag, you don't, you're going to seize again and then you're going to end up with neuronal death and metabolic acidosis and respiratory failure and all these nasty things. But truly the difference with eclampsia as opposed to epilepsy, for example, is a seizure in a pregnant lady is not that long. It's about 15 to 20 seconds at most. So for the most part, you don't even need all those other drugs. I mean, to be honest, like the seizure will stop. They'll be postictal. You're going to be worried about the baby and the baby you know has some changes they don't like seizing but once you start the mag you're stopping the future seizures and for the most part the seizure itself will handle it you know it's not wrong to give the traditional drugs but you really actually probably don't even have to so even us and i'll i mean you know davis and i are super fortunate we have these wonderful nart boxes that are basically like attached to us at 24 7 365 
um, when we're on the airframe. And so, like, it takes nothing for us to draw up whatever. I mean, as far as narcotics. The time it takes watching a, uh, a true seizure, 15, 20 seconds, we're not going to be able to draw up out of Anverse. It'll stop. It'll, it'll stop, stop on its find, own yeah. usually before we can even draw it up. Mm-hmm. Um, so keep that in mind. It, and if you're in an ER where you got to go to the Omnicell and sign your life away for a narcotic and then come back and get it, it's probably going to already be done. That's an easy way to tell, hey, is this a eclamptic seizure or is this a real seizure? Those Now, there are those patients that have a history of seizures and then they get pregnant and then they deal with this round-robin thing. But for the most part, the eclamptic ones are quick. And, you know, we always say this, and I just got to keep it simple. If you have someone who does not have a history of a seizure and they're found down or have seen, witnessed grand mal seizure, it is eclampsia until proven otherwise because it's life-threatening. And if you don't do the things and, you know, maintain their airway and get them in the treatments and hypertension and all the stuff, I mean, you'll kill them or they'll die not necessarily because of anything anyone's done wrong, but it's just lack of recognition. So the ones with epilepsy, obviously that's a different animal. And eclampsia is very rare, less than 20 weeks. Have I seen epilepsy with its onset presentation in pregnancy? Yes, I have. It's just one of those tricky things. You cannot assume that that's what the diagnosis is. Um, And with someone with known epilepsy, obviously, you know, just do all the things, get them to a hospital, and then let the high-risk physicians figure it out. So whether it's really just, because we don't deliver for epilepsy, uh, but then we do deliver for for eclampsia. eclampsia. (laughs) Yes, yes, yes. And as far as administration is concerned, you know, you get into those patients sometimes that are just really hard sticks, and that's okay. You can give MAG-IM, it's a different dose, 10 grams divided into two, Mm -hmm. five gram, one in each side of leg or buttock. So, um, an IV is not your end-all, be-all. That's your administration. You can give this drug IM. And it hurts, um, but it, I mean, it's absolutely, and that, so the, what you're talking about, the five grams is considered the load. So you load somebody with five grams in each, and then you would still, if you can get the IV, then you would do the two after that. But again, you can continue to do the IMs, you know, every four hours if you still didn't have an IV or an IO, the dosing, you know, the IV dosing doesn't change through an IO, but yeah, that's a huge point. I mean, we do that on labor and delivery. People roll in and they have no access. We can't get anything. They're super clamped down and we just give it IM. Done in the PZR. I mean, it's anything. Anything goes. It, it's it's about the patient. It's not about what's going to be for us. So. Absolutely. Yeah, the, may be, the shot may be painful, but death is worth more it. painful. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's exactly. it. the only advantage, I think, and the reason, part of the reason we still carry the, you know, we give the one gram, one ml vials on the airframe. That's the main reason for why we still have them. We could carry the premix we want, but it's, we have the option of we can give it Doing IM or IV or, or however, yeah. however we get presented with it that day. Um, for those of you out there on an EMS truck or ALS truck and you have access to mag, if you have one gram of mag on your truck, it's not enough. Just get off that soapbox real fast. You need five. Yeah. So minimum, um, and that'll get you at least 20 minutes, but make sure you have enough mag, make sure it's the appropriate dose and make sure you have the right amount. So I want to come back to real fast, the Foley thing. Yes. Um, so a lot of people don't know that, that yeah. if, if you're making urine, you're okay. Yeah. If you quit making urine, you got a problem yep. as far as mag toxicity. So yep. that employee, if you're doing an interfacility transfer or you're in a small ER and you're watching somebody and you give them mag or what have you, 
go ahead and place the foley. Yeah. It'll, it'll, it's a quick, easy way to say because sometimes these small outside hospitals they can't get mag levels. They may we can they can order all they want, but somebody's out to lunch or they don't have a they can't get it back fast enough. They don't have the ISTAT version, whatever. Mm-hmm. And so foley's a quick, easy way. Besides tendon reflexes, which sometimes people have trouble with, um, there's a lot of great YouTube videos out there. Shout out to uh, see those, but just use your foley as a one way to double check it. Yeah, I mean, all year, obviously, pregnancy, the GFR goes up, but the rates are the same. It's based on your weight. So if you have a normal, if you have a normal urine output, then you should not get mag toxic unless your rate's too high. So anyways, we, we love a Foley. So. so when these people become mag toxic, the gluconate dose, you give one gram, right? Yeah, or one ampule, whatever you have. So yeah. what is your preference over gluconate versus chloride? I don't really have a preference. It's whatever's whatever I have. Mm-hmm. So um, the gluconate is what we carry on labor and delivery. So it's it's whatever you have. So again, I think it has to do with availability and mm-hmm. stuff. At one point, I think we didn't have any gluconate in the hospital. You, you can only so. get chloride, and so we were getting like these. They're pre-mixing so they're t- exactly like pulling a third of it out, and yes. giving you this weird dose of things. But right, yeah. Yeah, I mean, we we have access. Most everybody's got calcium chloride in their cocoa cart for sure. Sometimes people don't have gluconate. I know there's a couple of hospitals that around Mississippi that they, they don't get it. I mean, it's expensive mm-hmm. versus they're required to carry chloride, so they're just going to use that. Just remember, for as far as chloride, good point you bring up, chloride's three times the ionized calcium. So you may, if they're just a little bit or you're trying to knock them back, you may give them a third of it mm-hmm. instead of the entire uh, amp of calcium chloride or entire syringe of it. Gluconate has to go through that first pass liver effect, so um, just be mindful of that, that your chloride has three times the bioavailability of mm-hmm. calcium immediately. So we've gotten this patient. We've given them a mag. Okay, we're, we're good. We're loaded. We're getting the mag infusion. Now let's talk about blood pressure control. Their blood pressure now is 157 over 100, um, or 167 over 100. And they we got to figure out something to manage this blood pressure. They've got the mag. They're not sh- they shouldn't seize, but they're, they're still hypertensive. Um, few drugs we play with a lot for us, uh, labetalol, hydralazine, and PO and afenapine. Mm-hmm. Is there a certain uh, trigger pull on each of those drugs, or is there a certain rationale you personally like to use? So thresholds 160 over 110 to treat, and over two of those over 15 minutes. So it's not just one pressure and then she's normal range. Obviously, I wouldn't treat that, but if she's persistently severe hypertensive that's my trigger to treat uh you can look at the pulse pressure again if you have a wide pulse pressure then i do think things uh, like labetalol will work if you feel like you have a more narrow pulse pressure they could be really vasoconstricted and hydralazine might work if you don't have iv access and they're not eclamptic and can maintain their airway well then po immediate release precardia is a great option sometimes and again it's understanding the physiology people don't respond to one drug and then you give a couple doses it's different than treating in the er again a non-pregnant lady these people can take such incredibly high doses of labetalol and hydralazine that you would never administer to an old lady again 20 20 40 80 again we are pushing this stuff every 20 minutes and they're just you know ramming out severe range blood pressures with i mean just chewing it up i mean it's not even affecting them so ACOG has a great algorithm. 
I don't have it totally memorized, although I've looked at it probably every day of my life for the last 15 years or since it's been created. But recognizing, again, you can use all, you can switch from one to the other if one's not working. Again, the key is that you keep cycling your pressures every 15 and, and keep dosing every 20 until you get to 140 over 90. Or, well, sorry, excuse me, let me say that again. Until you are not severe range. Again, it doesn't have to be less than 140 over 90, but until you're less than 160 over 110, you don't have to treat anymore. That, that's your goal. I'd say like until you get that trend going down instead mm-hmm. of going up. Exactly. You, you want to, okay, we're going to maintain it, mm-hmm. and then I want it coming back down into a little bit. And it, sometimes in the hospital, again, we treat severe range hypertension with the IV, you know, antihypertensives, but we will also sometimes add PO to those things. So labetalol 200 PO, Q8, again, to help stabilize, but not to confuse people, but severe hypertension has to be treated with an IV medication and treated until, again, it's not severe. But in our, you know, we'll mix a little bit of the PO plus to help us stabilize, again, get sort of longer periods of not having those severes. But again, I don't have a true preference, but it, you can look at your pulse pressure and that'll help you sort of dictate which way to go, um, but use what you got. So keep it simple. I think the point you brought up that was most surprising to me when I went through the stork class was the dosages are so much higher. High, than, high, So high, much high. higher than oh, I'm yeah. used to giving somebody. You think somebody. you're going to just yep. know someone. Like, I can't, I can't tell you that I've ever drawn up 80 of labetalol and been like, this will be fine. Oh, I've done 60. I've never done 80. Gosh, <laughs> it makes me nervous. But. We push it on a daily basis. I'm telling you, 20, 40, 40, 80. I mean, it is very easy to escalate. And you also have to be aware of your max dosing. So again, the Stork stuff on the app has the max doses. I believe Labetalol is 220 milligrams total in Mm -hmm. a 24-hour period. So you can get there super fast in my world if you're mixing around with different things. And Hydralazine has a 20 milligram max. So, I mean, in, in your world, if you're transferring somebody and they're still spiking these severes and you've gone through this algorithm and you've given all this stuff, I mean, you may have to use other things, cardine infusions, you know, Clevyprex. We use other things in the critical care world, just like you would to control the blood pressure. Because again, there is significant morbidity and mortality with this hypertension if it remains untreated. I like things done fast, but truly you have an hour from when you notice the hypertension, the severe range hypertension to the recommended, it's again, maximum of 30 to 60 minutes for treatment of recognition of that hypertension so again i like i'm like come on five minutes five, it, it's past five minutes is past where's where's my drug you'd like hanging out with us we'll just drop, ah, look, like. yeah, just drop it in get it in there but you do have 30 minutes again is still a reasonable time frame to treat it i would rather it treated faster than that uh just my personal preference but again keeping cycling those pressures and and watching it and getting that magnesium going is and i like the algorithm really takes the thought out of it i mean it, absolutely. it's it's absolutely lined out where you start here if this doesn't work redose with this and then you move on to this tra- it, it's it's this. absolutely makes it where there's no thought involved so if you have access to that algorithm pull it up because there's no thought involved and it lays out a direct pathway of how to treat these patients mm-hmm. keep in mind you sometimes get complex we're talking about mag with somebody that's in renal failure they have a creatinine above 100 1.5 and you're worried about, hey, are they going to get magtoxic really easy? Same with these, some of these drugs, depending on oh, what's, what else is going on with them, if they've got a septic component or if they've got baseline chronic failure or what have you, some liver stuff. 
Um, just keep in mind, we're talking about giving these big doses, but it's all patient dependent. So if you got somebody that has this weird complex history, yeah, sure, shoot them with 10 or 20 in labetalol, see what happens, make sure you're recessing your patient, taking, all right, how long is this going to hang around, though? Is this somebody that we would have to worry about? All right, is the heart rate going to get too low too fast or any of those kind of things? Too? You know, we've had, a, we've had a cardiac cripple. She was a cardiomyopathy. We didn't realize until, obviously, changes occurred. But her tachycardia was the only thing driving her output at that mm-hmm. point. So the drug of choice, the initial hypertensive, she came in looking preeclamptic with severe features. And so labetalol was administered. You know, we took a nosedive on the tachycardia, and her output went to nothing. So, again, you just have to be mindful of what's driving your bus. If it's cardiomyopathy or you're not sure, well, then hydral is probably your choice. That can cause some tachycardia for mama and baby. But, again, for the most part, it's pretty well tolerated. We like to try to avoid labetalol in our asthmatics. Again, if you have severe range hypertension that's not responding to anything else, just recognize the side effects of labetalol. It can cause some, you know, complications for asthma, but give the drug. If there's severe hypertension, you can't control it. You can control the asthma and you can control the airway if you had to, right? Yeah. So it's, but we try to avoid it if we can. But again, that I will definitely never forget this case where, again, we slowed the heart rate and she really started to decompensate because it she was She didn't actually, have that stroke volume compensation no, on it? No, absolutely not. So... Something with the labetalol and asthma, it, it can cause complications. For me, it's one of those, all right, cool, I got some albuterol here hanging out. We just give it to them, give them a little bit of help that way. The other thing And the that, mag can help with and, asthma, and the, too. Yeah. I was going to say, the yeah. mag, make sure that mag infusion is still it's going. going. <laughs> because uh, that kind of helps to counteract it. So if, they're, mm-hmm. if you're getting both at once, you kind of already have that built. Uh, just to throw in a little bit of other thing on top of that, BiPAP in these patients can be super comfortable for them and make them feel a whole lot better. Uh, I had two cases with that in the ER where they were, all right, they ha- have asthma, pregnant. We're not eclamptic, thankfully. We're preeclamptic. But they were having asthma problems because it was Mississippi summer and there was everything everywhere and pollen all over the place. And it's like, all right, well, we can give them a little bit of mag, give them a little bit of other things. But BiPAP actually made them feel a whole lot better and they were able to sleep a lot better just because it took a lot of that, it took that positive pressure, gave them a little bit of peep, and it allowed that diaphragm to actually push open a little bit better interesting um so let's talk a little bit about uh the eclamptic patient that you're worried about hey we talked about these seizures last 15 20 seconds but what if it keeps on going through they or they get persistent seizures does that mean we withhold on all the benzos that we're talked about the the barbiturates if that's what you're using but typically the benzos of the versed or ativan is it bad to give those per se no absolutely not i mean save the mother so if you have a mother who's in status again that's a totally different animal if you have a mother who seizes in front of you and you just feel better to give it's it is okay but recognize that in an eclamptic seizure your baby's going to be bradycardic usually there's a transient bradycardia for about 10 to 15 minutes if you're in the field or in an ER somewhere, you don't have obstetrics, again, you gotta tolerate that, recognize it's happening, support with oxygen. Again, that'll help you break the seizure, get your mag going. They seize again, yeah, absolutely, use it. Again, if, and then also say, okay, is something wrong with my magnesium sulfate? Because if you have a therapeutic level, you shouldn't have ongoing eclampsia. You shouldn't have further seizures. So check your level, check your dosing, administer the meds, again, stabilize the mother, because otherwise the baby's got no chance. So 
it, you know, we know that these drugs cross the placenta. We know that they can cause sedation. Obviously, up on labor delivery, if we're doing something like this and we have to administer these medications and we're moving towards a quick delivery because let's say the bradycardia doesn't resolve, well, then I'm talking to my NEO team and letting everybody know, hey, I just gave this, I just gave this, your baby's going to come out super gorged so that they're ready with whatever it is to administer to be able to help the baby. So, um, you know, stabilize the mama first. Otherwise, you, you really don't have anything left. What's, uh, Dave, someone point this straight at you. What's your thoughts on Ramazicon? Fine by me, I guess. <laughs> I mean, I <laughs> my, only, my only thing is a lot of people give it. Uh, you see those uh, patients that go back into season or whatever after these. Typically, we're talking about you're giving it, you give them mag, you give a pregnant mom mag, and you say you give her 10 of her said I am because he didn't have an IV and she's seasoned and you're worried about it or that's the way it went. Do you think Ramazicon's a bad idea or you think it'd be okay? Um, you know, uh, it goes back to what you got to do to help the mom at the end of the day. Um, if you feel like it's something that can get you in a good place with mom because baby's going to respond to what she's doing. Um, and then, like Rachel said, if you need to have your NEO team ready, um, you know, with whatever type of adjunct medicine that they have to, mm -hmm. to get the baby, that's fine. But at the end of the day, like mom is the priority. So if you feel like it's something that's going to help you, then yeah, sure. My only thought with it is it could sometimes it'll help you prevent intubating mom or into having to go down a road of preventing aspiration or yeah. what have you. It can buy you some ways if you have access to Ramazicon. I've only worked for one ambulance service ever that had access to yeah, it. Yeah, that's but the thing is you're not – that's not something you're going to come across very often. But It may keep you from having to intubate mom or put positive pressure or anything else that, like we talked about, has all those complications, which kind of leads me on the next road. So you have mom – eclamptic she seized or she's getting to the point where she's in respiratory failure from cardiomyopathy or she's in heart failure what have you let's talk real quick about the the airway management the intubation side of intubating somebody pregnant and rachel you hit it perfect before it's always going to be a hard airway yeah never 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 play with it glad I mean, i'm not it's uh of the airway yeah ne never never play with it it's a big belly yeah uh, i mean full belly are the things that you think of Davis that maybe you change your practice a little bit different? Yeah, this is a w how many times have we been on here and we preach set yourself up for success. You got to go into these people and say this is going to be a difficult airway. Ramp your head to the bed up 30 degrees. Okay, you're going to get that and when you lay them flat, everything kind of compresses back on top of that airway. Get them up 30 degrees, just like an obese patient you would, right? Um, if you feel more comfortable with the loaded bougie in your tube for these patients do it you know that's something that you need to practice have all your difficult airway maneuvers set up and ready because you need to go in thinking this airway is going to be tough it's not your everyday mm -hmm. little bitty patient going to be an easy airway um, and you may get in there and it's fine but set yourself up for success don't get into a situation where you're like oh my gosh what do i do now and have to start thinking down have that algorithm already out in your head the steps that you need to take um, to have first pass success Something else a lot of people don't think about for me with airway anatomy, a lot of times our pregnant ladies, they, they swell or their facial features change. And so that can change how you bag them or how you put a mask on them. It can also change your internal anatomy too. So you get pressure pushing in ways that it may not normally, so that airway may not line up just perfect. Um, the other thing is, is I always worry about the fat pad right behind the top of their neck. 
how are you gonna do you put the towel on or, or you hyperflex their neck um, can you get the partner your partner or somebody else you're working with put your arm under there just to lift it up enough trying to get the airway in line where you can see it better those like you said set yourself up for success making sure you've got everybody you need or every tool you need to make it make it a little bit easier uh, real quick because it's a burning question I know when we talk store to air care I'd, I'd, I kind of gave Rachel a heads up like they're gonna ask <laughs> RSI drugs yes and mama yes 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 so we talked a lot about how cardiomyopathy can look like preeclampsia and there you have to be careful so particularly with with intubation for a pregnant mother rapid sequence intubation is always favored and particularly again you can use whatever drugs you feel like you need to but succinylcholine and tomidate are the two that are preferred in this situation because if you use something like propofol and you have a patient who's a cardiac cripple you probably drop your pressures in that situation so and that's from our ob anesthesia colleagues that recommend those drugs that's what we're using up on labor delivery so that is that is sort of their favor again always assume the full belly be ready for pulmonary edema again particularly when you're talking about an eclamptic or preeclamptic with severe features and you're going to have laryngeal edema it's going to be hard their face will be swollen it's a hallmark of preeclampsia is that their face and their hands are swollen so everything on the inside is absolutely swollen too um, again it's just but those two drugs i mean that's the way to go so straight from the OB anesthesiologist. Yeah, I'm not saying you can't use other drugs, but that is what they have favored, so. I yeah, and we've gotten into, um, what I've found in my practice is that people are way overdosing on rock. Yeah. Way overdosing. You can give half or 75% less of the dose of rock and achieve paralysis, but it doesn't have that long lasting effect, right? Um, you know, you, how many times have we drawn up a hundred of rock and then they're paralyzed for 45 minutes? I mean, that, that's just unnecessary. You know, if you, if you're just a huge rock fan, go with 50, even 25. And mm -hmm. I promise you, it's going to be, you're, they're going to be paralyzed long enough, just fine. Um, but sucks is the way to go. I mean, it's a shorter, shorter paralytic here, but if you're just a rock fan, don't use the full dose. You don't need the full dose to achieve paralysis. And I'll say this, the rock, I'm a big fan of using lesser rock most of the time. If you, because they're high metabolic rate, usually what's going on with mom, it, they're going to cook through it faster anyway. Right. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you give somebody, you know, full 100 kilo person, 25, 30, 30 milligrams of rock, that's usually enough to facilitate intubation, to get yeah. them sedated, to do what you need to do. You don't have to give them this big lugging dose, especially if you're worried about reassessment on mom and you don't want to hide something from you. Um, that's what, I like it better for is you can reassess your patient a little bit faster than sometimes you couldn't otherwise. Uh, same with sedation. So sedation meds, use whatever you need to mm -hmm. use. Um, just be mindful of if they are worried about delivery, when you get where you're going as far as transport, or if we're talking about imminent delivery, be mindful of what you're giving. If you're given narcotics, specifically fentanyl or Dilaudid or morphine or any of those things, uh, let whoever's going to be taking care of the baby know the baby's going to come out stunned or near apneic or apneic and they're probably going to have to give some positive pressure ventilation or narcan or something mm -hmm. to get them get them through xyz time period that immediate transition yeah um but don't don't worry about it it's not it's not the end of the world take care of mom first and then we'll take care of the baby i'll tell you covid you know over the last two years taught us a whole lot about sedation of the mother i mean i can't tell you how many times i walked into the unit and all the ICU 
folks like these pregnant ladies are chewing through my sedation it's almost impossible to and obviously it's in the setting of sepsis and arts and other things so it's a totally different animal but just they are hard to control it is I mean everything it's why I love it but it is much harder to keep them sedated and paralyzed you can do it all I mean we do interventional procedures on our labor delivery floor where we intentionally paralyze the fetus and it wears off and it's just fine to accommodate whatever procedure we have to do so again it crosses the placenta it's fine stabilize the mother treat the mother maintain your airway and oxygenation if you don't have a PaO2 of 70 you're not going to perfuse your uterus and she's going to start contracting and then you're going to get in trouble because she's going to start delivering I mean when I walk in the unit they're like oh we're looking good our PO2's you know in the 50s and I can see on the monitor she's contracting I'm like the uterus will tell you if she's happy or not if she's if she's contracting you're not giving her enough so it's a sad of at least 95 and you know a PO2 of about 70 a map of 65 or 70 again those are our happy zones you gotta gotta maintain those things so keep that co2 around 30 and exactly at least that, that yeah that pao2 doesn't go below 80 for me and then we're we're happy hunky-dory yes exactly um i think a lot when we talk about sedation and the icu i remember a lot of our friends that work in the icu mm-hmm. and then giving the same complaint and i they were literally talking like hey man what kind of cocktail you got today or this that and the other and a lot of times what we do uh or we get to do with some of the patients we deal with, we have to give them a cocktail, maybe versed fentanyl, ketamine, Valium, all, all kinds of different little things. We kind of play this little balance game of what works right for that patient and then mm-hmm. the constant stimulating environment of an airframe. The, the way I look at these patients with moms is I was, I was telling one of our pharmacy friends, I said, hey, so what you're describing is the same thing I deal with an 18, 18-month-old RSV that I had to intubate because they will literally chew through every drug you give them within five minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're giving them, you know, normally an 18-month-old will say we're given two milligrams of Versed at a time and you're wanting to give the entire syringe of five because that's the only way you're going to buy you some time to, like, draw up the next one. Um, is that kind of what you've seen too, Davis, about as far as... Yeah, these people, these people like a cocktail. Um, I'm a big fan of ketamine and these people on top, of, yeah. on top of your Versed fentanyl... Um, I found that ketamine just gets them in addition to those others right where you need them to be. Um, and you can give, you know, as much or as little as you need, obviously, but um, that's what we've put into our practice on anybody that's difficult to sedate. You know, our typical sedation med is versed fentanyl. And if we're having a lot of trouble, we'll throw on that ketamine and usually it'll get them where we need them to be. I know propofol works pretty well a lot of times, but for me, I, I'm because of the high risk of hypotension, I'm, I'm more worried about staying away from it personally mm-hmm. in these yeah, patients. And, and in our environment, and in, in an aircraft environment, propofol, I've found, it's really great when you're in an ICU and you can cut the lights off. And I've just found in, in a high stimuli environment, propofol, you have to give such high doses to achieve the sedation that you want that then you get into that hypotension, yeah. you know, run and and I, I just don't like propofol in our environment um especially for this patient with the hypotension involved with the dose that you're gonna have to give so real quick since we're talking icu stuff we talked about a co2 somewhere around 30 because they're gonna yeah. borderline their respiratory alkalotic that's how they maintain for the baby mm-hmm. pao2 greater than 70 you really want at least 80 
Um, if you're dealing with these COVID ARDS or what have you, aspiration pneumonia, th those patients that we've got to deal with in the last three years, we probably haven't got to deal with as much before. Um, as far as ventilation management, because this is a question I've gotten phone calls at 3 a.m. about, uh, what, to me, it's all same thing, uh, low volume, high rate. Have y'all seen anything different? It, that seems to work better for the patients I've dealt with and a little bit more pressure control or PRVC than volume. That's what they seem to like. Um, have y'all had any experience with that or any differences? Um, the stuff that I, the one thing I just want to say to keep in mind is this isn't the cookie cutter vent settings. You know, it's just like, it's similar to a DKA patient where if you put that respiratory rate real low in a low volume, their CO2 is going to increase and mm -hmm. then you've hurt the patient. Um, just have that in mind that this isn't your, turn on the vent and plug them in. You really got to do have a little bit of extra thought um, behind it. I'm, I'm kind of like you. I like a, I like a high rate on these people. Um, you know, if you, if you want more volume, sure, that's fine. But um, just make sure that you have an entitle and you're monitoring your CO2 levels. Correlate it. That entitle CO2, let it be around 30, somewhere mm -hmm. in there. Exactly. Uh, another thing you can watch out for, we talked about cardiomyopathy a lot. Remember, your entitle can correlate to your cardiac output. So if you have a sudden drop or a slow drop in entitle CO2, you haven't changed their ventilatory status, or you're watching somebody spontaneously breathe, and they haven't changed their ventilatory status or how much they're, t they're driving, keep in mind that could be a sign of, hey, they're dropping their cardiac output. Um, to the point about dropping the heart rate earlier, mm -hmm. they, can't, they can't compensate this, that, and the other. I'm by no means an expert in echoes or ultrasounds, or especially in the pregnant female. However, this is one of those times if, if I've got somebody pregnant that I'm worried about their hemodynamic status, put a probe on them and look. Just see what that heart's doing. Um, you brought up a great case before we started talking here about cardiomyopathy post-pregnancy, but that's a real thing. They're putting so much stress on their heart, and they're going through such a rapid change afterwards. Mm -hmm. It's something to definitely watch out for. Yeah, and in that case specifically, we used our ultrasound as a trend. Like, like you said, I'm not an expert in cardiac ultrasounds. I'm not, but I can tell you know, what squeeze is better or worse. You know, mm -hmm. I can't give you a percentage of their, you know, output or whatever, but um, you can use it as a trend. You know, specifically we carry the ultrasounds and we walked in the room, boom, that's our baseline. Titrated some drugs, boom, do we have a change? No, okay, here's what we need to try. Um, that's just something to be mindful of that you can, you can use those tools as a trend. And we talk all the time on here about how important trending patients are for sure. I would just say, you know, when you talk about ventilation, again, I, maybe I'm making it too simple, but mechanical ventilation should be almost the same, really, in a pregnant lady as a non-pregnant. And there's lots of variations and, um, and certainly specific cases and ways that you would adapt your volumes and stuff. Just, I think, recognizing the basic stuff, recognizing that your volumes will probably need to be higher for a pregnant lady, recognizing your airway's hard, again, and that CO2 level, I mean, that's the specific, you know, changes for pregnancy. And there's more, but it's... A good thing to do on vent, uh, going back to the vent settings, is just like on a DKA patient, what was this patient doing before? Right. Try to match exactly what they're doing. Um, and, you know, some people are better at that than others, but look and see, like, if she's taking in 30, 35 breaths a minute, try to set up your vent to match that. You know I mean? That's doing nothing but helping you because that's, that's her body's natural ability. Response to... Exactly. Yeah, the acidosis, so... Another the uh, speaking of this patient that decompensates or gets worse. Another question a lot of people ask is, all right, vasopressors. You got somebody that's hypotensive, whether it's pre-mag or they're dehydrated. They're a dehydrated pregnant patient that also happens to be 
you know. Third spacing everything. Yes, yeah. it's super fun. All, yes, all, there's all, no volume. Yes. <laughs> and it doesn't matter what you're doing and yes. what, what drug you're giving. Um, nothing works well, but you got to bridge them. You got to take care of mom. Vasopressors, there's no limit. There's no, you know, give whichever you think is appropriate. Um, for you, pretty much, Rachel, what's your first, your Levo? Yeah, Levofred first. We um, we know that these things cause vasoconstriction, um, particularly at the uterine placental level. So we like a left lateral decubitus position. Obviously, fluids and crystalloid, if you feel like, depends on what their status is. Again, if it's preeclampsia, you know, you have a third spacing edematous patient who's, you know, volume contracted technically, but again, volume overloaded still. So we use crystalloids, again, try and maintain a map of at least 70. Again, if you can't get there with crystalloids or blood, again, if you're talking about a hemorrhage, obviously, whatever it is, sepsis, it doesn't matter. If you can't get there with your basic two, then you need to add pressors. Again, if you don't stabilize the mother, there's no chance for the baby. Again, we're talking about transient moves to get somewhere to get to where, you know, an obstetrician or a high-risk specialist can intervene and figure out what to do next. So Levo first, always first, and then I don't really know what the, the right second is, and I guess it depends on your physiology and what you're dealing with, but certainly, and if you're hanging too, we're in trouble. I mean, it's just, we're in trouble. You're so, in a bad day, are Yeah, it's, this, is, this is the worst day now <laughs> that you're hanging too. But, because really, I mean, the baby's probably an afterthought at that yeah. point. If you're on two presses and you've done everything else and she's, a trauma, you know, your pa- your baby's probably already to be gone. I mean, and and if you're not close to an OR, there's really not anything you can do. Again, save the mother; she can have another baby later. So, um, but yeah, leave a first. Answer your question. Leave a first. Same doses. Same same same, same ballpark. Doses. I like the vaso as a second one if yeah, just I think throwing so. my opinion in there but um we're also vaso nuts around here so we you know can't say nothing yeah um, that's, that's mine every day <laughs> every day of the week um just i epi's another one that usually yeah, gets brought up epi, ep, epi's a thing just be mindful of all the side effects of epi and everyone else can go but uh definitely it's one of those take care of your mom if you start going down the presser route okay yeah cool the 20 minute presser to buy you some time till you get blood or fluids or whatever you need to be on board great but if you're on a presser for a prolonged period of time i read somewhere the mortality goes up through the roof the fetal mortality is like 50 percent at that it point is. but like the, the mother's goes up i think 30 percent. you know every once in a while i walk into the icu and you know the maps 95 i'm like hey we good we don't need severe range blood pressures you can turn the levo off like our goal is you know normal and a pregnant lady, I will tell you, they will tolerate a lot until they just fall off. So when they start showing you signs of true decompensation, hypotension, pallor, you know, tachycardia, again, particularly we're talking about in hemorrhages or sepsis, they're so they're so decompensated, you need to be very aware that they're about to die. So it's just they can they're young and otherwise healthy, they can hang on until they've lost you know, two thirds of their blood volume, and then they have nothing left. So then it's the bad day. Yeah. <laughs> Real quick, one last thing: help syndrome. Since yes. we kind of we kind of touched it, and it's one of those things a lot of people don't get to, especially in our world, we don't get to see it very often. Uh, most of the time, for some people, they never see it in their career. That's just something they have to take a test every couple of years, and it's oh, help syndrome is always. And it's, you know, B test. It's help syndrome. 
when you think of help, uh, to me, I, I have a skewed definition, but when you think of help, is there something that you want to say is early recognition and obviously is the first part of it, but as far as management or how you identify it and go, hey, this is going to be help, is there something that immediately comes to your head? So I think a common misunderstanding is that you have to have severe range of blood pressures to have HELP syndrome. People think, oh, she doesn't look that bad. It can't possibly be HELP. But the majority of patients will not have severe range of blood pressures and they will have this life-threatening disease. So it's often your 140s over 90s lady who doesn't have a headache, but her liver hurts. And this area, and that's good, right upper quadrant pain is one of the most classic presentations. And that's because they're, they're, they are maybe possibly having any Gleason's capsule liver rupture or bleeding. Again, I mean, these are, this is what kills women is when that kind of stuff happens. So uh, I think you know, recognizing that you don't have to be the 180s over 120s kind of picture to have it. Um, unfortunately, the only treatment we have for it is delivery. So it's really about getting that mother stabilized, recognizing it and getting her to somewhere as fast as possible so that someone who is trained to deal with it can intervene as quickly as you can because you know sometimes we'll try and manage to where we can optimize baby and give steroids for fetal lung maturation but in certain cases of help syndrome again there's a classification system if you're really down a train we can't wait it's about getting the baby out of there delivering the placenta to provide that stabilization so hopefully they'll start to come around before they get too sick so it is there are other masquerades of help syndrome too like fatty liver and TTP, you have to be very careful because it can look, I mean, hemolysis can look very different, start doing, talking about all these different things, and then you're really down a zebra train, but it, it can all look and present the same way. So I say, you know, make sure you're checking your labs. Again, you have an idea of what it is, and then again, that magnesium sulfate, again, saves lives. So I think uh, the biggest part, of, I'm glad you said it the way you did, they can have a normal blood pressure. Yeah. Or relatively normal blood pressure. Yeah, 140 over 90. I mean, The first question it. I ask is somebody that I'm doing for preeclampsia or somebody that's pregnant, all right, what are their liver enzymes look like and what's their platelet count? Mm-hmm. And it's one of those, okay, cool. Not not that it's totally off, my, off the plate of it can't happen, but it's less likely to happen if I ask it on the front end. Mm-hmm. Or I have a bigger heads up, I should say. Um, Davis, what's your... Yeah, it's just... Help? And a lot of times when these patient comes in, there's a lot of excitement involved, right? You get caught up in what drugs you're going to give, this, that, and the other. My thing is just don't forget the labs, you know, because that can tell you, that, that can paint a picture that is so different than what is sitting in front of you. Just do not forget to check your labs and then compound that with your assessment to see what direction you need to go in. So I usually get a CBC, a CMP, or again, a basic profile plus the liver enzymes. I get a urine toxicology on everybody again, and uh, and coax again, a fibrinogen level again. If you're talking about elevated liver functions, which is part of the definition, so it's hemolysis, elevated liver enzymes, and low platelets. So with those three things again, and a urine dipstick, of course, for protein, you can figure out a whole lot again. If your coags start going out, if your fibrinogen's downtrending, I mean, you're down a more serious pathway of other things again it just tells you how is everything sort of working but and again that's not just a one-time deal we check it and then we check them again if something's abnormal I'll check it in 12 hours or six hours if I'm concerned if it's normal usually it's a daily you know daily sort of check 
um, but it, it can absolutely catch you off guard. And again, people think, oh, I need to transfuse platelets if my platelet counts 50,000 or 60,000. Really, again, we follow regular hematology. We don't transfuse if it's until it's less than 50,000. But that's really only if you're going to the operating room. It's not we're transfusing for a platelet count of 100,000. Exactly. Yeah. No, I mean, we're, we are actively managing these people and the transfusion is not really what they need. They need to be delivered and managed accordingly. Um, so it's, you know, again, they'll just chew through your platelets if you give them. So it's sort of a waste. Again, if you're not, it's not a frontline management type thing. It's not anything anyone would do in you're not going to fix it. Trying to fix the number is not going to help anybody. No, it's not going to help not, patients. It's recognition of the number, yeah. really. It's not trying to fix it. Yeah. Well, great. I, man, this has been awesome. This is super exactly what I was thinking we would talk about today. Y'all have anything else you want to add about clampsia, preeclampsia? Or? No, I just want to say to our listeners, if y'all have an opportunity to take the stork class, it's amazing. Uh, you learn a lot. Also, our uh, MCS app has all the all the slides and lectures and stuff on there once you take the stork class and get access to that it's a it's a super good help so if you have an opportunity do not hesitate yeah so. i the only thing i didn't say that I, I would say people ask how long do you use magnesium sulfate like can you just give the load do you do the infusion do you stop it after six hours so again for people again i have the luxury of being on labor and delivery so when you identify someone as preeclamptic Again, if you're moving towards delivery, then they get the magnesium sulfate continuously through the delivery and for a period of 24 hours after delivery. If you have someone, again, you're stabilizing, the magnesium sulfate is never turned off unless they're mag toxic or there's some other kind of issue where you feel like you have to turn it on. So start it and keep it going until you get where you're going. Again, if you're in an ER, again, start it, start the load, start the infusion, keep it going. It's not something you're going to turn off in a set period of time. This is, again, about identification, treatment, keeping it going, and then from an obstetric standpoint, just, again, to understand, like, how long is this drug needed for pregnancy or postpartum? It's usually a 24-hour treatment. Um, again, you can have people that come back, again, for eclampsia or something after they've already had preeclampsia. They've evolved into something else. Again, we re-magnesium, we readminister the magnesium sulfate, Again, that 24-hour period is what is the standard of care. You might see some places where they will do 12 hours, and if the patient's really stable, they'll turn it off. That is not what is recommended. It's a full 24 hours of treatment after delivery. Um, again, and once you get the obstetrics folks involved, they'll help with that. But recognize, don't turn it off. Keep it going. Watch your urine output. Check your reflexes. Listen to some lungs. Um, you know, sometimes people will have, with preeclampsia, they'll come in with pulmonary edema. And this is a little controversial, so I'll first of all say that. I don't know if what I do is right. But when you're talking about pulmonary edema and preeclampsia or eclampsia, it's Lasix, you know, it's the 40s. Head of the bed at 40, 40 Lasix, again, you know, non-rebreather, 40 liters, whatever. Whatever you have. So when you think about what's driving the bus, it's preeclampsia. Okay, so the treatment for that to prevent them from seizing is magnesium sulfate, but that's volume. You have to give volume. So what we usually do is do all the things to dry up the lace, you know, dry up the pulmonary edema, get that to go away, and then consider administering the minimum amount of fluids. Mag, mag burns through an IV if you don't piggyback with something else. So you'll see our nurses do the minimum amount of volume that they can give 
to maintain the magnesium sulfate once you're over the pulmonary edema. But if you're not over it, you have to fluid restrict. Otherwise, you're not going to fit, like you're trying to fix one problem and you're creating another. So that's the one area where I would say be very careful if you have someone who has preeclampsia with severe features, pulmonary edema, and eclampsia. Again, dry them up, get them fix that issue first, and then the magnesium sulfate can come after. Or perhaps that's where you use your, you know, your five grams um, in the legs and you don't give the huge volume or the continuous infusion. You have to get sort of specialized medicine, but again, it is not uncommon to do that. Um, and if you continue to give a lot of volume, which the mag requires, you, you know, make it worse. So that was the only thing I don't think we talked about, but this is super awesome. I hope people <laughs> learned from today. Um, and yeah, come take the store class. I mean, I think it's, uh, I'm sort of biased, but <laughs> I, think it, I think it's awesome. And, um, certainly, you know, always available for questions. So. Just bringing that up. It's, it's okay to use IV nitro. Yeah, IV nitro, you can do low-dose nitro, and it'll drop your preload just enough to where, hey, you can prevent. It's one of those I'm maintaining, so it's not going to get any worse. As long as I give them, like, you know, we start at protocol or a lot of protocols say start at five mics per minute, and then you titrate up to effect, well, 80 mics a minute. It's basically the same as what we do for MIs all the time. But you can start at five or ten mics, and that may just help you by maintain until that LASIK starts kicking in and that fluid starts going down or what the positive pressure, whatever you have mm-hmm. to use, high flow, whatever, maybe going up the street. But that can buy you a little bit of time until you have to do something else. Again, you don't want to, like uh, you mentioned, you don't yeah. want to end this, like, just snowball effect where it just do, 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 go down the street. Right, right. So, guys, I appreciate your time. Thank you. This has been awesome.